So last week we were talking about uh, our core values as a church, and we were talking about taking initiative last week, that when we, as Jesus followers, see a need, then we do something about it. Now, today, we are moving on to the culminating core value. We've been kind of working backwards, kind of counting down three, two, one, and we are talking about love, and the question that we're asking is, what is the truly loving thing to do? And this is the counterbalance, and this is the probably question that you had if you gave any thought to what we were talking about last week, because isn't it true that the needs that we see are unending. And, uh, if you just said, okay, it's up to me to meet every need that I see, then that would quickly become very impractical. You would run out of money and time and sanity if you were trying to do that. And so, so very often you, know, you're, you, you face this. There's a need out there. Okay, I drive by somebody who's on the side of the road who's asking for money. What do I do with that? Do every situation, every time? Uh, I, uh, wherever you encounter this, it's even more difficult perhaps when it's within our own family. You know, what is the, if somebody is asking for help and because of the relationship that we have with them, because of they are friends or because we were related to them and the ask comes out there or you see a need, are you obligated to meet that need in every situation? How do you decide? You know, we talk about the best question ever. What's the wise thing to do? How do you decide? Is this really wise and loving? What is the truly loving thing to do? And so as we talk about this, our ultimate core value, the distinguishing characteristic of all Jesus followers, this idea of love, we are answering this question, what is the truly loving thing to do? And if you are able to get your mind around the concepts that we're going to be talking about today, then you will have discernment and you will have wisdom and you will know when is the best way and what is the best way to help someone and at the same time bring glory to God in the process. I told you that uh, this whole idea of these core values came about several years ago as we, our leadership team was reading through a book called The Advantage, and it was saying to look over the different uh, people in your church or in your organization and say, what, who are the people that are really embodying who we want to be as a church or embodying what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and it's pretty simple, that, uh, pretty intuitive that we're going to end up with something related to being loving, right? I mean, that's kind of like the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to be loving. But we were, I also noticed that uh, you know, just to throw that out there, because it's so ubiquitous, because it's so commonly talked about, because we talk about everything from loving our spouse to loving ice cream, that it kind of loses its power if you just say love. So I tried to think of a different way of describing what we were talking about, and we came up with this idea of being others-centered. A person who is selfish and self-centered is unloving, but a person who is loving is going to be others-centered. And so the bottom line for today is that Jesus' followers are others-centered. If you are going to be 
following Jesus, then you're going to be following his pattern. And part of his pattern, a big part of his pattern, is that he is others-centered. And we'll unpack exactly what that means as we talk through that today. And then the practical step, the, the practical application, the way that you can take this and make life better and make you better at life is when you face those situations where you encounter a need and you're wondering what's the, what's the best way to meet that need, when you're in doubt, you can ask this question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? So I'm going to look at this passage. This is from John chapter 13. I'm going to skip around a little bit. You'll see, you'll see the, the different verses that I'm going to be reading. I'm going to be living, reading from the New Living Translation. I noticed that somebody put out our Burgundy Bibles on some of the tables. So if you'd like to follow along, that is the New Living Translation right there. And as I said, I am going to skip around a little bit, but I want to give you kind of an overview that leads up to Jesus' key teaching on love in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. So this is what it says. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Verse three, Jesus knew the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Verse 12, after washing his feet, their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your, teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Verse 34, so now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would have to do in and through us. I pray, Lord, that you would drive home the good news that you love us in the way that we are talking about today, and that from that we will draw the power and inspiration to follow that pattern of love in our interactions with the world and our brothers and sisters around us. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to each heart individually, personally, and that no one would be able to leave here today without saying, I encountered the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I'll just remind you that, of course, we are here on site. This is 
the best, most personal, interactive experience of Cornerstone that you can have. But we also are running these same messages. You might have noticed that we've been recording using the iPhone over the past couple of weeks. So the messages are available on demand at our website on a week delay. So if you miss a message or want to catch up on a message, you can find it there. And then also people are watching together online. And again, right now that's on a week delay, we'll probably change that so that they're synced up again. Uh, but I just wanna remind you because weather or traveling or whatever, you might not always be able to be here on Sunday morning, but you can always stay connected and stay up to date with what we're talking about at Cornerstone. And each of these experiences is designed to inspire and equip you to follow Jesus wholeheartedly because we know that following Jesus makes life better and you better at life. And today, especially, you will see how that happens when it comes to the question of how do we love one another well and what does it mean to love one another well. Uh, especially because we are recording for online, I want to mention that if you're new here, start here. Text the word new to 603-225-2550, and that will allow us to stay in touch with you and keep you updated with what's going on at Cornerstone. So what we're saying today is that Jesus followers, because we are loving, because Jesus is loving and we are following his pattern, Jesus followers are to be others-centered. At the beginning of this passage, it lays out that John chapter 13, a main theme throughout the entire chapter is this idea of love. The introduction to the chapter, the very first verse says, he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. In other words, what characterized Jesus' ministry was love for his disciples. And now, as he was approaching the end, this is the night of his betrayal, the night before he went to the cross. So it's coming to its goal and to its end. And in fact, that's why I highlighted that word end, because it does just doesn't mean the end of the story. It has the, this word in the original language has the idea of the goal to which things have been moving. So yes, Jesus has been loving to his disciples by teaching them and healing and, and showing them his ministry, but now it is coming to the goal, goal, the ultimate end of his ministry, and that was the ultimate expression of his love. He is going to be other-centered, and we're going to see that in the extreme in the cross and resurrection. Now, Jesus was other-centered through this entire time. And in the, in, in the first scene in this chapter, we see Jesus demonstrating that. And how do we see him doing that? By leveraging his power for the benefit of others. Our power as followers of Jesus are, is to be leveraged for the benefit of others. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to take a sabbatical where I took about three and a half months off from church and all of my responsibilities there. And I 
I had this, and it was just a resting and recuperation and a recreation time. And I really had the sense and had the desire for the Lord to speak to me in some particular way. It was kind of funny because like for the first month, it was just like doing stuff around the house that I was enjoying doing and hanging out with my family. And it was just glorious, but there wasn't anything super spiritual about it. I was just enjoying the time. But over time, there was a spiritual theme that developed And it was this idea of leverage that I knew that whatever I was going to do with the rest of my life, my goal was to leverage all of me to the greatest extent for the benefit of the kingdom of God. That whatever skills, talents, abilities, and time that God has given me, that that was to be leveraged to advance God's kingdom. And that ties into this idea of authority authority, which is what Jesus talks about here. He's saying he has power or authority, but that power is there to be leveraged for the benefit of others. And he gives us a really beautiful example of what it means to be other-centered. Look at what it says in verse 3. This is really, I, I, I still never get over this whenever I teach it and talk about it. It's the end of Jesus' ministry, the night before he goes to the cross, and the reality of that, it kind of is indicating, is kind of sinking in. And it says that Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything. In other words, he's the master of the universe. He recognizes who he is as the Son of God, fully human, fully God, and he's now getting ready to love his disciples to the end, to the utmost, of fulfilling the goal, the purpose for which he came. He recognizes that God, his Father, has given him all authority. So that would be, I would think, a pretty heady experience, wouldn't you think? To recognize that all the power of the Godhead has been entrusted to you. And then the very next verse starts out with this word, so. Now, just if you, even if you know the answer to what comes next, think about what would you expect to come next? You have all power and all authority, so you demanded that all of your disciples get on their knees and worship you right in that moment, right? You have all authority and all power. What do you want? The world is yours. Just ask, just snap your fingers and whatever you want will happen. All authority and all power is yours. So what did Jesus do? He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and washed the disciples' feet. Now, some of you will have heard before that the person, the servant who was responsible for washing the feet as a group of guests came in for dinner, that was the lowest, most dishonorable role that you could fulfill in that setting. It was taking the lowest spot. So Jesus, recognizing that he occupies the highest spot in all the universe, willingly submits himself, humbles himself, puts on a towel and breaches down and washes the disciples' dirty, smelly, ugly feet. 
And this was Jesus' pattern. He was constantly taking the power, authority, privilege that he had and turning around and leveraging it for the benefit of others. And in fact, that's exactly what he was going to do on the cross, was it not? He had the perfect record. He did not deserve the judgment of God, but yet he willingly submitted himself to a tortuous death, a humiliating death, the injustice of a kangaroo court judgment. Why? Because he was leveraging all of that for us. This is described very beautifully in another passage. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. I'm going to read it to you in the message translation. It's a pretty famous passage, but again, a lot of times I like to read it to you in a different translation because it makes it a little bit fresh for those of you who might have heard it over and over again. But this is talking about this, saint, this willing humbling of himself, this willing putting himself in the position of a servant, this willingness to be other-centered when really all of us should be serving him, he took on himself a willingness to serve others. The Apostle Paul is describing this to the church at Philippi in the second chapter of his letter to the church at Philippi. And this is what he says. Think of yourselves. If any of you have gotten any at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life. If being in the community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with one another. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient and life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So Paul very clearly picks up on this idea that what God has what Jesus has done is set aside his privilege for the benefit of others. He leverages his authority, his power for the benefit of others. And as Jesus followers, we are to follow that example of being others centered. 
And Jesus, in fact, explicitly states in John chapter 13 that this pattern, this example, is one for us to follow. Jesus' pattern is service to others. When he's debriefing the washing of the disciples' feet with his disciples, he says, I have given you... I have given you... I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. So he's saying, what I have done... I realized that I had all the power, all the authority. I put that aside and leveraged myself, my life, for you to serve you. What I'm doing is an example for you to follow. So I want you to do the same kind of thing that I have done. And so then he goes on and he's summarizing his activity, summarizing his teaching at the end of the chapter in verse 34. And he says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. So I can imagine that the disciples' ears probably would have perked up. This is something that we've never heard before. He's going to give us something brand new on the eve before he goes to the cross. This is going to be important. And then he says, love each other. And I imagine they thought to themselves, well, that's not new. We've heard that before. We all grew up hearing that. That's Old Testament. This is old news. But Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. So what is new about this commandment is not the commandment, but the standard on which it is based. He goes on to say in the second half of that verse, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Jesus is saying, I've set a pattern for you to follow. This pattern of selfless love, of sacrificial love, is what I want you to follow. If you want to know what the pattern is, what the standard is for your love for one another, then look at my life as I have loved you. And I don't think it would be lost on the disciples as they reflected back on this, that Jesus is saying this on the night before he goes to the cross. He is ready and willing and about to pay the ultimate price of literally laying down his life for his friends. And Jesus points them back to that and says, as I have loved you, the pattern and standard that I have set for you, that's the pattern and standard that you should use when you decide how you love one another. And he goes on to say that this is the distinguishing characteristic of his followers. It says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. If I love in this way, selflessly, sacrificially, leveraging my power and authority for the benefit of others, and then people see you as my followers doing the same thing, loving people selflessly, sacrificially, taking whatever power and resources is available to you and using it, leveraging it for the benefit of others, then that's going to say something to the world. That will be the defining characteristic. It will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And that has been the pattern and example for the entirety of the Christian faith for all 2,000 years. In fact, uh, nearly 1800, about 1,800 years ago, an early church father, theologian named Tertullian, wrote this 
He says, look, they say, and talking about how people would look on the outside, looking in at the church, at followers of Jesus. Look, they say, how they love one another, for they themselves hate one another. In other words, the, uh, the, the norm in our culture is disdain and hate for one another. But when I look at the church, what do I see? I see people who love one another and how they are ready to die for each other. Look how he's picking up the themes from Jesus' teaching that to love one another is to lay down your life for one another. How they are ready to die for each other for they themselves, talking about the world in general, are readier to kill each other. And this is supposed to be the contrast that we see even today. Uh, it could be something as simple as uh, how you take care of your family, how you speak about others, how you speak about others that don't necessarily agree with you, how you talk and post on Facebook, maybe even, for example. There's supposed to be a contrast, a very distinct difference between the way that believers interact with one another, believers conduct themselves, the pattern that they follow, and what we see in the world. Because the default setting for humans is self-centeredness. But Jesus' followers are others-centered. And let's describe exactly what does that mean to be others-centered? What does it mean to love one another? It has, it is tied up in this aspect, this, this idea of sacrifice. Because love sacrifices for others. Now, we've been looking at John chapter 13, but Jesus has a parallel passage in John 15 where he's teaching his disciples the same things. This should be familiar. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He's reiterating this theme, but he's going to give it a little bit more definition, give it a little bit more clarity about what he means by this, because he says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. In other words, the ultimate expression of love is when you set aside your life for the benefit in service to someone else. Now, I hope that this will never be the case, but there are times for any of us, but there are times when love does require that ultimate sacrifice of laying down your life for one another. And just so that there wasn't any ambiguity about this, Jesus is saying this, and then he goes on to say, and you are my friends. I have called you my friends. And remember, he says this on his way to the cross. He makes it very clear that I love you, and this is how you can know that I love you because there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends, and I'm going to the cross. I'm going to lay down my life for you who are my friends. See, the good news in all of this is that not just that we have a pattern to follow, not just that we can have clarity and insight into how to love one another, but the good news in this is that we get to see how much God loves us that there is no limit to his love, that he could not have demonstrated his love in any greater way. Look at 
look at what he did. He looked at us and his, qual- his, qual- his um, preconditions were not, yeah, they're worth it or they've earned it or they're good enough or they have potential or fill in the blank. It's not, oh, they're such a nice person. They're such a good person. I want to do something special for them. It was because God is loving that he acted in this loving way. And so that, I think, should give us insight and help when we think about what's the pattern that we're supposed to follow with others. It's not always do they deserve it. It's what's going to be beneficial for them. How can I be others-centered? And in order to have this perspective, because this is definitely countercultural, I believe that ultimately you have to have a change on the inside, a change of heart, that you can't conjure up this kind of love, but God can share his love with you, and you can therefore be a conduit of his love to the world. That's what happens when we say yes to Jesus and we commit our lives to Jesus. We are saying, look, I know that I've blown it. I know that I don't deserve your love, but that you decided to love me anyway and that you demonstrated it in fullness to the end, to the extreme by dying on the cross for me. And so when you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to the forgiveness for the past, but you're also receiving power and hope and life for the future as well. As you have followed Jesus, as he is your Lord and Savior, then you are going to be a conduit of that kind of love. And you're going to find that when you encounter unlovely people that you can't love, that God's love will flow through you to them. And he will turn you into a loving person because it's his love that's transforming you from the inside out. And perhaps the more common way that we express this, because again, I hope that none of us ever have to come to the point where to prove our love, we must bleed. But on a daily basis, a follower of Jesus is others-centered. And the Apostle Paul describes this as a living sacrifice. In Romans 12:1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, in their culture, they would have been familiar with actual animal sacrifices, and they would know the drill, that you would find an animal, that you would bring it to the temple, that it would be slaughtered in front of you. And the idea was that that was a substitute, a substitutionary atonement, that that animal was taking your place and dying the death that you deserved. And there would be, that it would be a dead sacrifice at the end. This was a dead animal. And Paul is turning that on its head and saying, now that you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus was that sacrifice for your sins. Jesus is the reason that you are forgiven. And he was raised from the dead. He is living. And now you are going to live your life. And the way that you live your life is your sacrifice to your heavenly father. So I'm not asking you to go to your death. I'm asking you to die to yourself and live for others. So to kind of tie it all together, what does, what does this core value of love look like? What does it mean to be other-centered? I've defined it this way. Love is the decision to do what's best for another, even when it costs something to you. 
what we see here is exactly what Jesus did, what God did in sending his son. He decided to love us. It wasn't a feeling, it was a decision. He did what is best for us. He looked at us in our broken, unforgiven state and said, this is what they need. They need forgiveness. They need new life. They need a new heart and a new mind. So I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to make that happen, even at great cost to myself. And so Jesus' followers, being other-centered, it's a decision. It's something that we decide to do, and sometimes even contrary to our feelings. It's when we look at a situation and we decide this is what's best for that person. I have the ability to do something about it. It may cost me something, but yet I'm willing to do that. And this becomes challenging because there are some times when people ask you for something and the most loving, most loving thing to do is to say no, to not enable, to not uh, uh, facilitate a harmful pattern. But they're asking for help but it's not the kind of help that's ultimately going to be loving. And that might cost you in that relationship. On the flip side, there might be times where things aren't asked, but you know that you have the ability to do good to someone and it's going to cost you, but you decide to do it anyway because that's what love does. So we've said love, what we're talking about today, can be defined as being other-centered and Jesus' followers at following his example, following his pattern, are others centered. That love is the decision to do what's best for another, even when it costs something to you. So how can you apply this? How can this practically help you? When you're in doubt, when you're facing a situation and you're not exactly sure what's going to be helpful, you can ask this question. What does love require of me? If I was going to be loving, if I decided to be loving, what's best for this person in this situation that I can do that even if it costs me something, this is something that I can do that would be helpful. I've used this wording of it because uh, many of you would be familiar with Andy Stanley and when he teaches on this, this is the question, this is the wording of the question. So I'm just gonna reinforce that. What does love require of me? In this situation, what does love require of me? It might require forgiveness. It might require overlooking faults. It might require humbling myself in order to ask for forgiveness. It might require serving a person that may Maybe hasn't deserved it, but I know that it's going to be of benefit to them. What does love require of me? Jesus' followers are always following his example and always asking, what does love require of me? And we can look and see that when God in all eternity looked down on us, looked at us in our unforgiven, unredeemed state, said they need a sacrifice for sin. They need a new heart and a new mind. They need hope and a future. And I will give it to them because that's what love does. And God is love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I... I, I I don't think I could ever do justice to the depth of love that you demonstrated to us in the cross. 
And not just the cross, but resurrection, giving us new life, hope, forever hope in you and with you. And how motivating that is that uh, you taught us that, that when we are loved much, we love much. When we understand how much you have loved us, then we in turn overflow with love to one another. And if we're having a hard time forgiving or loving others, it's because we don't appreciate the love and forgiveness that we've been shown. So pray, I pray, Lord, that you would go beyond the power of words to speak to each heart, to show us how much we are loved by you so that we might accurately reflect your love to the world around us. Lord, I pray that you would give each of us wisdom as we face needs and encounter needs and people who have needs to know exactly what love requires of us in each of those situations. And then that you would empower us through your spirit residing in every believer to love as you loved so that when people on the outside look at us, your church and Cornerstone in particular, that they will exclaim, that they will be shocked by, that they will be uh, stopped in their tracks by the love that we show for one another and that it will be convincing, overwhelming evidence of your reality, of your truth, that we are your disciples because look at how they love one another. May this be the case, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.